Hello everyone, today is October 16th, super spreader Trump is on the loose, and if it's Friday, then this is the Delve. Welcome back, there are 18 days until election day. More than 14 million Americans have already voted. We have a lot to get to today. We're unpacking the Supreme Court nomination hearings from Trump appointee Amy Coney Barrett. And we're also speaking with Kathy Kunkel, the Democratic candidate for West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. We're also going to continue following up on Patient Zero, aka Donald Trump. He's been back on the loose this week, holding rally after rally and threatening to kiss people. But first, we begin with the Amy Coney Barrett hearing. It's been a lot. The Senate Judiciary Committee has been meeting 10 hours each day over the course of the last four days, asking, or trying to at least ask, the nominee her stances on a wide range of legal topics and important issues. From the beginning, this was always going to be a contentious hearing. Republicans are ramming through this lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court with just a few weeks until Election Day. And contentious it was. This hearing is not normal. Uh, it is a sham. It is a rush to put in a justice. The last time that we had a vacancy so close to an election was when Abraham Lincoln was president. And he made the wise decision to wait until after the election. The last time we lost a justice so close to an election. That's what he did. Today, we are 21 days from the election. People are voting. Millions of people have already cast their ballots. And I go uh, to the words of Senator McConnell. The last time we had a situation in election year, he said, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. That set the precedent that so many of you have embraced. This hearing has brought together more than 50 people to sit inside of a closed-door room for hours while our nation is facing a deadly airborne virus. This committee has ignored common-sense requests to keep people safe, including not requiring testing for all members, despite a coronavirus outbreak among senators of this very committee. By contrast, in response to this recent Senate outbreak, the leaders of Senate Republicans rightly postponed business on the Senate floor this week to protect the health and safety of senators and staff. Mr. Chairman, for the same reasons, this hearing should have been postponed. What we are seeing here is an exercise of just raw political power. You are moving ahead with this nomination because you can. There are very few written rules around here. The most important rules are the unwritten ones. The most important of those rules is you keep your word. We all know that the United States Senate works and our democracy really works because people keep their promises. Members of this committee on the other side promised when Merrick Garland's nomination was given no hearing, no vote, members would not even meet with him, that 
never would a Supreme Court nominee be considered during an election year. You were breaking that word. Less than one month ago, the nation lost one of our leading voices for equality. Ruth Bader Ginsburg left very big shoes to fill. Judge Ginsburg loved the law, and she loved this country. She worked all of her life to ensure that the opening words of our Constitution, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, included all the people, not just a few, elite few. She was a standard bearer for justice. Justice Ginsburg's nomination was the first one that I participated in when I came to the Senate. And it was a real thrill to be part of that crowded and celebratory hearing for someone who had broken down barriers and reopened doors and staunchly believed in a woman's right to full equality and autonomy. In filling Judge Ginsburg's seat, the stakes are extraordinarily high for the American people, both in the short term and for decades to come. Senate Republicans haven't passed any type of additional coronavirus relief since earlier this spring. Remember that $1,200 stimulus check? Yeah, yeah, same. I, I barely remember it, too. And that's it. That's all Congress has given us. Uh, people are hungry. Evictions are through the roof. 22 million people have lost their jobs since the beginning of the pandemic. But Republicans have no time to consider those things. All attention is on getting Amy Coney Barrett seated on the Supreme Court before Election Day. But let's discuss the Supreme Court and its current makeup a little bit more. As major lawsuits go through the appeal process, the ultimate arbiter is the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is made up of nine justices. After the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that number was brought down to eight. Three of those are more liberal and were nominated by Democratic presidents. Five are conservative and were nominated by Republican presidents. If Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed by the Senate, she'll bring the number of conservative judges to six. That means uh, conservatives will have a supermajority of six compared to three liberal judges. And just a little additional context, there was an opening toward President Obama's last year in office, but Republicans in the Senate refused to vote on his nominee at all, because they said it was an election year. Fast forward four years, we're in an election year, and you guessed it, Republicans will confirm their nominee. Screw that silly election year rule. Republicans are doing this because they can't. They have the majority in the Senate and have decided to go ahead because they can. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island warned Republicans of crying hypocrisy in the future if Democrats do anything similar. I do want to suggest to colleagues that the rule of because we can, which is the rule that is being applied today, is one that leads away from a lot of the traditions and comedies and values that the Senate has long embodied. Don't think that when you have established the rule of because we can, that should the shoe be on the other foot, 
you will have any credibility to come to us and say, yeah, I know you can do that, but you shouldn't because of X, Y, or Z. Your credibility to make that argument at any time in the future will die in this room and on that Senate floor if you continue to proceed in this way. But what's so wrong with Amy Coney Baird anyway? Well, I'm so happy you asked. First, she's 48, and she's only been a judge for three years. Three years. And now she's going to be confirmed as the next Supreme Court justice for life. We should just end this discussion now. But there's more. If Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, it is likely she'll vote to overturn Roe v. Wade and the Affordable Care Act. Not just likely, it is essentially what Trump nominated her for. Ruth Bader Ginsburg defended the Affordable Care Act for Republicans and conservative members of the court seeking to abolish it. Barrett's presence will be not the fifth vote needed, but an additional sixth vote on the court to repeal the Affordable Care Act. If Roe v. Wade is repealed, abortion rights would be protected in less than half of U.S. states. Nine states even have trigger laws that would automatically take place if Roe v. Wade is overturned, banning termination of pregnancy in the first and second trimesters. Others still have their pre-Roe abortion bans on the law books. They're not enforceable now and due to Roe, but if Coney Barrett is confirmed, they could be overturned. Pre-existing conditions would no longer be covered, but so long as Amy Coney Barrett gets confirmed into the Supreme Court, Republicans don't seem to care. We're also in a global pandemic. Ending the hearing, our favorite senator, Mr. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, had this to say. Uh, I'm going to tell you about where I grew up. I don't know why. It just seems to be a good way to end this thing. Uh, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with anything. But I grew up in a small town called Central South Carolina. And the first of my family to go to college, my dad owned a bar, a pool room, and a liquor store. And uh, my mom ran <clears throat> the bar, and my dad ran the liquor store. And when I was old enough, I ran the pool room. This is why I think I'm a good senator. It's good training for this job. But I remember... Speaking about country music, we had a piccolo. You know what a piccolo is, Judge? I don't know what a piccolo well, is. Well, you're too young. A piccolo is something you put money in to listen to the song. And the one song that I remember to my dying day, talk about country music titles, was My Wife Ran Off With My Best Friend and I Miss Him. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a wonderful country. Wait, wait, sorry. No, not that part. Democrats generally look at people of a disposition like Justice Sotomayor and Kagan. Uh, Y'all have a good chance of winning the White House. I don't know where the polls are going to be. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, I think think it's true. I think the public will go into the voting booth and they'll say, okay, I've seen the kind of judges Democrats will nominate. I've seen the kind of judges Republicans will nominate. That will be important to people. I think that Judge Barrett is exactly the kind of person that you would expect any Republican president to consider. First of all, Senator Graham, I'm sure the Biden-Harris campaign 
thanks you for the strong endorsement. Second, Senator Graham is in an extraordinarily close race for re-election in South Carolina. He's running against an incredible guy named Jamie Harrison. Look him up, donate to his campaign, see if you can volunteer. So how would all of this affect Trump country? Let's, let's use Kentucky as an example. As of 2013, more than 20% of people in Kentucky didn't have any health insurance. That's a fifth of the state. That number dropped to 7.8% by 2017 as a result of the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare. People said they stopped skipping necessary medical attention because of this regular source of health care, which tells us that before, without insurance, they were less healthy. Now in 2016, 62% of Kentucky voters cast their ballots for Trump, a man who has stated countless times how he is going to get rid of Obamacare. They've also repeatedly voted for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, another beauty, who's expressed similar feelings. It seems counterproductive. Why do they vote this way? Many who voted in 2016 have said that they like the coverage they receive of Obamacare, but that it costs too much. Some Kentucky residents struggle to afford it, and many believe that the Republican Party is going to get rid of Obamacare and replace it with a better, cheaper option. <laughs> well, here's an update from Republicans on that front. In Trump's four years in office, he hasn't done it, plain and simple. Has he replaced pieces of the act? Sure. But the vast majority of the ACA, aka Obamacare, is firmly in place. Any plans he and Republicans have proposed will impose higher costs on individuals and cut their benefits. Another unfortunate reality is that many Kentuckians who have free insurance through Medicaid, like many Americans, don't realize that their free health insurance is a result of the ACA. They are on Obamacare and have no idea. Trump supporters are actively voting against something they rely on because of the misleading information stated by Republicans. If they keep voting this way, thousands of Kentuckians and millions of Americans will be without health insurance and unable to afford it privately. Oh, and you know, the unemployment rate is high at 7.9%, meaning that millions more are no longer receiving insurance from their employers in the middle of a global pandemic. When it comes to abortion, Trump voters may be working against themselves again. Uh, since the passage of Roe v. Wade, Republican leaders, particularly in the South, have tried to repeal and restrict abortion access in every way possible. Despite this fact, in 2017, over 360,000 people had abortions in the states that Trump won in 2016. That number, that 360,000 people, that's 42% of the country's total. That's a huge number. Voting in support of a president who's pretty intent on striking down Roe versus Wade will leave hundreds of thousands of women in Republican-led states with no safe way to manage their reproductive health. Again, a seemingly contradictory rationale for voting Republican. Honestly, it seems like they're not just voting against Democrats. Republicans have folks voting against themselves. Through outright lies and misinformation, Republicans are constantly harming their own constituents. But this year, there seems to be a wave building. 
a wave of Democratic candidates intent on reversing these wrongs. I got the chance to speak with one of them. Kathy Kunkel is running for the House of Representatives to represent West Virginia's 2nd District. We talk everything from health care to environmental justice to running a campaign during a pandemic. Let's have a listen. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for coming past the Delve today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself, your district, and all that good stuff. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. So by way of a little introduction, I'm Kathy Kunkel. I'm the Democratic candidate for Congress in West Virginia's 2nd District. Um, and, you know, I'm not someone who, you know, all my life wanted to get into politics, but um, I decided to run this year um, largely out of uh, increasing frustration uh, with the lack of political leadership on some of our biggest issues here in West Virginia. Um, I've been working particularly on uh, energy and climate change related issues um, for the last decade. Um, I've you know, I've been an uh, expert witness in many cases before our Public Service Commission, which regulates the electric utilities, fought for stronger energy efficiency programs and defended our state's rooftop solar laws. Um, and I've also been very involved uh, in community organizing efforts uh, in West Virginia over the last decade or so, um, including organizing after a chemical spill that contaminated the drinking water in Charleston about six years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, increasingly, I've just uh, been more and more frustrated by the fact that um, we just keep having political leadership from both parties that makes empty promises about bringing back the coal industry um, instead of addressing the real uh, challenges that uh, that we face in terms of our uh, our economic transition that we're already undergoing here in West Virginia. You know, we've uh, in the big picture, we've we've powered the country for decades and we've had billions of dollars of wealth extracted from our state. Um, you know, to out-of-state corporate interests, and we've perpetually been one of the poorest states in the country. And for the last decade, the coal industry has just been going from bankruptcy to bankruptcy. And every time the CEOs walk away with more money and try to cut healthcare and pensions uh, for their workers, and you know, we need we need to do something different here. You know, we really we need to work on revitalizing our economy, on bringing in infrastructure investment uh, in basic things like reliable internet and safe drinking water, so that we can have a stronger economic foundation going forward. Um, and we need to fight for basic economic rights like healthcare for all well-funded public education, which has been a huge issue here in West Virginia over the last few years. Wow. And there's also a pledge that, um, that you signed up on. It's West Virginia can't wait. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought that up because that is also one of the things that inspired me to, to throw my hat in the ring in this race, this cycle. Um, yeah, so West Virginia Can't Wait um, is uh, a coalition of candidates who have all signed on to this pledge to not take corporate money in our campaigns. Um, and I think that that is critical in a state that has been dominated by the coal and gas industries for such a long time and where so many people are just frustrated with uh, both political parties, quite frankly, and you know just see politics as sort of corrupt and not for them. And so I think taking a, a strong stand around not taking corporate money um, is really key to to electing folks who are who are not beholden to out of state corporate interests, which has been you know the political problem in West Virginia for decades. And West Virginia actually has this really strong legacy for labor rights, and it's kind of a shame that you know, like you were saying, these these out of state corporations 
have just been extracting um, the wealth from the state and not really taking care of their workers. Right. And I think, you know, we've, we've proven the lesson time and again that uh, we only get uh, systemic change when we band together and fight for fight for those labor rights, uh, you know, fight for the economic changes that we need. And we saw that 100 years ago in the violent struggle to form a union in the southern coal fields in West Virginia. Um, and we saw it a couple of years ago with the teachers' strikes. And again, it, it goes back to, to out-of-state interests. We had thousands of teachers at our state capitol a couple of years ago chanting about raising taxes on the natural gas industry to fund public education. And tell me a little bit about your district. It's it. I, I've seen a, a map of the districts. It's like <laughs> yes, this it's really, a, you probably scratched yeah. your head after looking yeah. at it. Me and the production team, we were just like, "Whoa!" It's like this wide swath of West Virginia. It, it goes from east to west. It's huge. Yeah, I have not independently verified this, but I've been told it's the widest congressional district east of the Mississippi, uh, which seems believable. I. <laughs> Yeah, I could believe that. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Is that, that's just like gerrymandering 101, right? I mean, yes, but not necessarily in the way that you might think. I mean, when this, when the boundaries of this district were created in uh, 2000, West Virginia was going from four congressional districts to three. uh, And they were, uh, I believe all Democrats at the time. And so, and it was, it was a democratic controlled state legislature. So it was essentially a fight amongst Democrats of which of the four congressional Congress people they wanted to get rid of. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, and tell me, I guess a little bit about the makeup of the district now. Is it predominantly rural? Is it urban? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting mix because it does cover such a huge area. So, um, we have Charleston, which is obviously, you know, the capital city of West Virginia, um, at at sort of at one at the Southern part of the district. And then, uh, the far Eastern part of the district is actually more suburbia. Um, and it's becoming, uh, more of like almost an exurb of Washington, DC. We have people, you know, moving out to that area and commuting into DC on the commuter rail. So that part of the district is really more tied into the, the DC and you know, Maryland economy than to the rest of West Virginia. And then, you know, in between those two population centers, we have about 15 rural counties. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's a very diverse district, uh, which has been a lot of fun just to to get to know different parts of it on the campaign trail. Um, but yeah, and it, and you know, politically, um, it breaks down pretty evenly actually between registered Republicans, Democrats, uh, and independents. And you know, like like the rest of West Virginia, it's also uh, d- does not have particularly high voter turnout. Um, in the twenty sixteen election, more than half of registered or more than half of uh, voting the voting age population of the district just sat out the election so that's something we're trying to work on this year and i guess tell me a little bit about the in in the 2016 election west virginia went for donald trump and is 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 west virginia kind of the place that would like split a ticket you know like maybe you know they would send like the democrat to the house and vote for a democratic senator like, you know, Joe Manchin, but also can vote for (laughs) Donald Trump. Like, how does that, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. So, I mean, certainly West Virginia uh, splits tickets. I mean, um, you know, we elected 
uh, a Democratic governor in 2016 at the same time that we elected Trump, although he then switched to Republicans. So I don't know what that shows oh, you. But, right. um, that, that did happen. <laughs> yes, that did happen. But uh, in the bigger picture, you know, I think this whole narrative of West Virginia as, you know, Trump country and just like deeply red is a pretty problematic uh, narrative. I would say West Virginia is much more anti-establishment than anything. You know, people who are very frustrated uh, with both political parties that have abandoned the concerns of rural America by and large. And certainly West Virginia has been, you know, for decades, one of the poorest states in the country. And, you know, the Democratic Party controlled the state legislature for 80 years from the New Deal era until 2014. And, you know, again, during that time period, we were one of the poorest states in the country. So uh, I understand people's frustrations with the Democratic Party in West Virginia. Um, Unfortunately, the Republican Party obviously does not offer uh, any real solutions to people's economic pain either. Um, but I, but I do think that West Virginia is the place that, uh, obviously can split tickets and does split tickets. And it's also the state that led the nation in a wave of teacher strikes. So, uh, it's a lot more complicated than just saying that we're Trump country. Right. I I think that's actually, it it speaks to kind of like the independence and, you know, kind of like that, that anti-establishment streak that you're, you were speaking to where, you know, a voter in West Virginia is capable of saying, I'm going to look at this ticket. I like this person. I don't like this person. It's not necessarily about party. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's good. Um, Yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, I I wish, I wish, uh, I wish we could get a a little bit further away from party politics in general. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's pretty incredible. And in West Virginia, there's actually, Democrats have the, the advantage with registered voters compared to Republicans, but there's also just this large independent voter block. Right. And I mean, if you look back over the last like 20 years or so, I mean, Democrats used to outnumber uh, Republicans in terms of voter registration about two to one. Um, and it's pretty much even now. Uh, and But the vast majority of the folks who've defected from the Democratic Party have therefore gone into no party affiliation. So that's no party is, is the fastest growing party in West Virginia. Right. That's, that's incredible. How does a Democrat speak to these voters? Um, what, what does it take to get a voter to split their ticket? <laughs> I mean, we'll find out, but I mean, I think it's, it's just speaking to the everyday concerns of people. You know, it's not about Democrat versus Republican. It's about, top versus bottom. It's about the massive inequalities in our country. It's about the fact that so many families in West Virginia uh, have trouble accessing healthcare or don't have reliable internet um, or, you know, uh, have poorly funded education and we can't afford to hire enough teachers in the county. You know, it's, it's speaking to those uh, very real material issues uh, that, you know, frankly, both parties have neglected in our state for too long. Uh, that I think will help us uh, win in November. Uh, that, and again, not taking any corporate money, which I think, again, speaks to the, the independence that that voters want to see in their politicians and, and should demand, quite frankly, because we've had got far too many politicians in D.C. who are just there to do the bidding of lobbyists. Right. And your work on the ground when you're speaking to voters, how do they feel about the president? Do they have a bit of regret? Or are they like, 
oh gosh, we really, you know, wanted an, you know, an anti-establishment candidate, some outsider, but he's really left us behind. Or are they still like, oh, maybe we should give him four more years? I mean, you know, it's, I don't think there's like one consistent narrative um, on it. You know, I think um, uh, there's certainly some, some diehard Trump supporters in West Virginia. I mean, he's got, he's got a good base here. Um, He's also got uh, a strong base of people who are not, not fans of the president. And again, a lot of people who just didn't vote for him and, uh, or didn't vote at all. Uh, and, you know, still are skeptical about voting and, you know, didn't see their lives improve dramatically over the last four years, to say the least. And that's probably true of the vast majority of people, uh, in the country. Um, and yeah, and there, there is that segment of voters, I think particularly, uh, older voters who, uh, have been kind of quietly less supportive of the president than they may have been four years ago due to the pandemic and, and other things. Mm-hmm. And how is the pandemic, I guess, affecting the campaign? Yeah. I mean, you know, the pandemic uh, makes everything more challenging uh, and campaigning, campaigning included. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, it's frustrating to not be able to go to, uh, you know, all the events that we would have gone to in a normal year and be able to meet voters that way. So, you know, it's just, it's made it harder to meet people and we've had to change our field strategy. Our, our volunteers have written and sent close to 80,000 postcards to voters across the district, which has been, uh, it was really an incredible effort. Um, and it's been really well received too. Like we've gotten phone calls from people who've gotten our postcards and, you know, uh, you know, thanked us for reaching out and that kind of thing. And um, so in, in the last few weeks, we're doing a major push on phone calls and texts to voters. So, you know, um, we're, we're doing what we can and, you know, we're doing some uh, lip drops at people's doors and things, but nowhere near, near the scale of canvassing that we had thought we were going to be doing a year ago. And I, I guess, do you see any type of in-person campaigning happening between now and, and November 3rd? I mean, we're doing some, I mean, we've done like 24 outdoor town halls over the last couple months. Oh, wow. um, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely getting out there. Um, I was actually just at an outdoor NAACP meeting last night. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're going to events uh, that are happening. It's just, you know, the, the volume of them is much lower than it would have been uh, in a normal year. So. Right. And then what about the pivot, I guess, into kind of like the social media space? How has that been? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been doing a lot uh, with social media advertising and, um, you know, a lot, obviously, during the pandemic and continuing, there's a lot more Zoom-based events and things. Um, uh, But, you know, I think, um, you know, it it is what it is uh, pandemic-wise, but we've been getting a good reception to our social media ads. Um, We've gotten... Uh, we had a really great video team from Southern West Virginia working on our our social media uh, content. It's been going really well. Oh, good. Yeah. I have a question. We hear politicians, I guess, uh, when they're, <laughs> I don't know why they always go down this rabbit hole. We're going to close the coal mines. And, and I think it turns off a lot of folks, especially who have, you know, been in that industry for generations and, you know, now becomes just part of the heritage of these communities. When voters hear, not so much we're going to close coal mines, but we need to pivot to other industries. 
are they receptive to that? Are they? I think they're both. I think there's both a receptiveness and like a little bit of uh, skepticism in the sense of like, well, yeah, show show me that this can actually happen, kind of thing. Because you know there has been a lot of talk and no action uh, to date. Um, but you know, I think as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the coal industry has been declining here for the last decade, you know, pretty dramatically. I mean, we've seen a lot of bankruptcies in Southern West Virginia, and I think people more and more. Uh, see the need uh, to bring in new things. And, you know, it's, it's very obvious uh, in many communities, obviously, that there's basic infrastructure needs too. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's not really like a question about needing to revitalize our economy in West Virginia, um, but it's, you know, how do we do that? Um, and, uh, you know, how do we do it in a way that is, is uh fair to, to workers and families and, you know, make sure that people get the health care and the pensions and black lung benefits that they are owed. So it's not so much necessarily that the voters are hesitant to change and change their industries. It's more like, uh, okay, we've heard this before. Politicians have been saying this for years. We're going to pivot to another, you know, you know, different types of industries and bring back these jobs and it never happens. Do you think maybe that's, you know, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, don't turn out. <laughs> right. I think it's, uh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's, a, there's a skepticism of like, can't, you know, is green jobs like actually a real thing? Um, and you know, if you, obviously you, if you have a job, a bird in the hands worth two in the bush. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, but I think there's in growing recognition that the coal industry is, is not coming back. Uh, in West Virginia, that it's not going to be what it was a few decades ago, um, and that we we need to do something different. And it's it's a question of what and how we're going to do that. Because you know, it's it's not a question of are we going to transition. The transition is happening. It just hasn't been managed well at all. Right, and that's both from the governor, like a state level, and probably also from just not having like a federal plan for. The pathway forward. Absolutely. And I mean, I would put more of the blame, honestly, on the, the lack of a federal response because, you know, the, it's a poor state, as, I, as I've said repeatedly. Um, you know, the billions of dollars of infrastructure investment are much harder to come up with at the state level. But, you know, to come up with a, a plan for economic transition in coal communities in terms of the federal budget is really a drop in the bucket. And the federal government has experience with, with similar things in the past, too. I mean, the Department of Defense has run a multi-billion dollar program uh, to help communities with economic transition when a, when a uh, military base closes in a community. It almost makes you wonder what have the politicians been doing, you know, for decades and decades and decades. Why have they not had more resources. I mean, I think they've been taking money from the coal industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and it's like, why haven't you guys had more resources directed towards your state or fought for those things? But wow. Yeah, I mean, I think both parties in West Virginia have been captured by the coal and natural gas industries for a long time, and you know, so there's there's a there you know there's there's a an easy narrative to tell people about a war on coal and uh, you know. Uh, easy political points to be scored by uh, talking about that, but that really doesn't help people in the end. And that just sounds really hostile. 
Right. You know, this when you when you hear someone say, "Oh, we're, we're, this is a war on the coal," it's like, "Oh gracious!" Like it sounds like you're declaring war on on the people. You know. Right. Well, I mean, that's how that's how that narrative has been created by the manufactured by the coal industry. You know, to to say that Obama and others are, have declared this war on coal, um, where in in reality, uh, it's mostly the natural gas industry that. <laughs> that uh, destroyed coal financially over the last decade. And you were also saying that you have a lot of experience in kind of like the environmental space. Do you see kind of like it plausible to have that pivot if there are like the resources or, do you, I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's billions of dollars of work to be done and like, and thousands of good paying jobs just in West Virginia in environmental restoration work. I mean, the, the amount of work that could be done to, to clean up streams that have been damaged by acid mine drainage, to clean up unlined coal ash pits, uh, to try to reforest uh, mine, you know, surface mine sites. I mean, there's, uh, there's a huge amount of work to be done. And, uh, you know, like we never talk about environmental restoration. That sounds incredibly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's. I mean, it's it's hard to not think about it if you <laughs> if you go around some areas of southern West Virginia. But I agree. I, I agree. It's really lacking in the national conversation. Wow. I literally think this is the first time I've ever talked about it ever. Um, <laughs> so, so, wow. That's that's incredible. And I'm sure like. Lots of states could, you know, could benefit from that. But once again, you, you never hear something about this from like the federal level. And I, then I would imagine like, especially with this administration, that's, that's not two words that would ever come out of their mouths. No, no. I mean, and there's actually, there's been a bill that's been languishing in Congress for a while called the Reclaim Act that would put about a billion dollars into mine reclamation in Appalachia. And it's just been, oh, wow. you know, sitting on someone's desk for several years at this point. Wow. What are some of your priorities that you want to kind of tackle when you get to Congress? Yeah. I mean, I think we've been talking about a lot of them um, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of working on climate legislation and making sure that it does have uh, a real jobs component and infrastructure investment component into states like West Virginia that have been so dependent on fossil fuel. Um, another thing that we haven't touched on too much yet in this interview is healthcare. You know, I'm a big, big proponent of uh, Medicare for all, universal healthcare. I've had so many stories shared with me on the campaign trail. Um, you know, one that particularly sticks out was a conversation with a mother whose daughter has cancer, who spends hours every week fighting with private insurance companies over the phone to try to get them to pay for her daughter's cancer treatments. And she herself has had to like forgo some of her own serious medical needs to try to afford medicine for her daughter. And it's just, it's a horror story. I mean, having a daughter with cancer is a horror story to begin with. And we've layered so much more unnecessary uh, trauma on top of that. I think I was reading in something about, um, it's, it's about like job, and I don't know if it's necessarily like job growth, but job opportunities that have been rising in West Virginia, in West Virginia has been centered around healthcare. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, like it's a growing, it's a growing industry. sector. Um, and we could be doing a lot more too. I mean, you know, uh, affordable, obviously making healthcare more affordable so that people could actually access care uh, is, 
is key. And, you know, there's also, unfortunately, a lot of work to be done uh, and a lot of uh, investment needed in addiction treatment and recovery. I mean, West Virginia is one of the states that's been hardest hit by the opioid epidemic, and we don't lack resources, not just for treatment, but also long-term recovery. And there's a blueprint for a turnaround in West Virginia. And we, we, you know, we have cities not far in, in the same region. Pittsburgh, you know, has gone through uh, revitalization when it was pivoting from, you know, being a steel city into now it's like this medical and tech hub. Uh, Cleveland, um, just kind of like the, the beginning of the beginning of the Midwest, that whole area. It's, it's had a bit of a regeneration. So it's definitely possible in West Virginia. It's just getting folks into Congress and into office that are going to fight for their priorities. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about West Virginia Can't Wait and having candidates up and down the ballot who have pledged to not take corporate money because it's not, you know, we can't just do it with, you know, one good congressperson or, or one good governor. You know, it's it takes collaboration in, in multiple areas of government to, to get something like this off the ground. So is the governor up for re-election as well? The governor is up for re-election, yeah. Um, uh, so the, the I, unfortunately, uh, West Virginia Can't Wait was actually founded by a Democratic uh, candidate for governor uh, who lost in the primary, unfortunately. So we don't have don't have anyone from West Virginia can't wait uh, running for governor, uh, but, but we do have the governor's race going on this year, and we've got a lot of a lot of interesting down ballot races too. You know, state house, uh, state senate type of races with West Virginia can't wait folks in them. And you know, part of the point of West Virginia can't wait too is to to build political infrastructure in the state and to to carry these fights beyond the 2020 election because you know it's so so frustrating, and I'm sure you've seen this many times of building a strong progressive electoral campaign and then all the infrastructure and volunteers just scatter to the winds when it's over. And so, you know, trying to, trying to figure out how we can uh, not do that so that we can uh, run West Virginia can't wait slates of candidates in 2022 and 2024 and continue to, to build the infrastructure and build power. Right. I, I, I love this pledge. Um, I think it's powerful and it makes, it makes the, the candidate people powered. Instead of exactly. bought by by these corporations who just don't have the citizens, you know, best interests at mind. Yeah, and we saw it in Virginia too over the last couple of cycles. I mean, there was that pledge specifically around not taking Dominion money, with Dominion being the largest utility in the state and probably the you know the largest corporate player at the state house, and that has really uh, transformed Virginia politics over a couple of cycles. So. And in the 2018 um, election, they had this huge blue wave. Um, so that's, that's really fascinating. And then I guess for our listeners, I like to, you know, give a bit of a call to action. <laughs> what can we do to help out? How can we help you in this race? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's 20 days left, which is uh, kind of, still shocking to me. Yeah. Uh, but we, we've got a lot of work to do in the last uh, three weeks here. And, uh, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, we're uh, 
trying to make 100,000 phone calls and texts to voters by the election. I think we're about 40% of the way there. Um, but if you go to our Facebook page, which is Kunkel for Congress, you can see our upcoming uh, phone phone banking trainings and get signed up for that because we certainly need more help with that. Um, and of course, anything you can do financially to help us out is greatly appreciated as well. You can donate through KunkelforCongress.com. I'll put both of those links in the description as well. So everyone Great. can easily find that. Yeah. I'm rooting for you. And I, I think you're going to do amazing. You're going to win. And I'm so excited to, <laughs> to have like, just like a, a new voice and, you know, and someone from West Virginia, I think that'll be really, really great because I feel like this is a state that needs to be involved in, you know, talking about the Green New Deal and environmental legislation and fossil fuel, um, uh, you know, ideas. It's, it's going to be so necessary to have your voice there. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I mean, I'm excited to just remind folks that there's a, a different side to West Virginia too. You right, know, that right. <laughs> <laughs> also that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, everyone, yeah. this is Kathy Kunkel. She is the candidate for U.S. Representative and the uh, second district in West Virginia. Did I get that right? <laughs> you did indeed, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. And, you know, once again, thank you so much for coming to the Dell. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. We now pivot back to our super spreader-in-chief, Donald J. Trump. Trump has just recuperated, just recuperated from COVID-19 himself. And as he was leaving Walter Reed Medical Center, he tweeted, Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. A little tone deaf, you know, considering 218,000 of our fellow Americans have died, and there are now 8 million cases. Those numbers are just staggering. Here's a list of all the things that President Trump has that you probably don't. First, an on-demand helicopter to get him to care quickly. Second, access to unauthorized experimental treatment. Third, a fleet of doctors and 24-7 attention. Fourth, the president has his own medical suite at Walter Reed and an extensive clinic in his own home. And fifth, he doesn't have to worry about the cost of any of this. If you have all of these things, then sure, I suppose it's, it's pretty easy to say, don't be afraid. You know who didn't have all of these privileges? Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. He just left the ICU after seven days and is now urging Americans to wear masks. The more you know. Trump is already on the campaign trail. When he first began traveling again last weekend, it wasn't even exactly clear if he was still contagious. But that didn't stop our favorite president from threatening to kiss his supporters. But it's great to be back in my home state, Florida, to make my official return to the campaign trail. See, fortunately, I'm not an old person. I'm very young, and I'm in such perfect shape. Right? I'm in such great shape. You know, I said that the other day. What are you doing? I said, well, I'm very young and I'm in great shape, perfect shape. And they said, Donald Trump misrepresented today again. He said he was in great shape, but he's very young. These people are the sickest of them all. <laughs> One thing with me, the nice part, I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel, I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. 
I'll walk in there, I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and um, everybody. I'll just give you a big fat kiss. Eek. Last night, Trump and Biden held dueling town halls and faced questions directly from voters. Let's hear a bit of the highlights. President Trump Town Hall. Welcome to our town hall with Joe Biden. Mr. Vice President, welcome to you. Good to be with you. Welcome, Mr. President, and thank you for being here. That was very well stated, I have to say. Good job. Do you have any remaining symptoms from COVID? Nothing whatsoever. I'm great. I feel good. And you don't know if you took a test the day of the debate? Uh, uh, Possibly I did. Possibly I didn't. We're in a situation where we have 210 plus thousand people dead. And what's he doing? Nothing. He's still not wearing masks and so on. And something happened. But as far as the mask is concerned, I'm good with masks. I'm okay with masks. I tell people wear masks. But just the other day, they came out with a statement that 85% of the people that wear masks catch it. So, you know, this is a very tricky law. That's what I heard and that's what I saw. And when a president doesn't wear a mask or makes fun of folks like me when I was wearing a mask for a long time, then, you know, people say, well, it mustn't be that important. If a vaccine were approved, would you take it? Would you mandate that everyone has to take it? Yes, I would take it. I'd encourage people to take it. We should be thinking about making it mandatory. How could you enforce that? Well, you couldn't. That's the problem. Just like you can't afford, you can't enforce measles. You can't. Why does it seem like I denounce white supremacy? Okay, you did I denounced white supremacy for years. You didn't ask Joe Biden whether or not he denounces Antifa. And frankly, you want to know something? I denounce Antifa. While we're denouncing, let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that. Uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. I know nothing about QAnon. I just told you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. Just this week, you retweeted to your 87 million followers a conspiracy theory. That was a retweet. I'll put it out there. People can decide for themselves. I don't take a position. You're not like someone's crazy uncle who can just retweet whatever. If you lose, what will that say to you about where America is today? I hope that it doesn't say that we are as racially, ethnically, and religiously at odds with one another as it appears the president wants us to be. They're talking about ballots that are corrupt, that are fraudulent. And your own FBI director says there is no evidence of widespread oh, really? fraud. Well, then he's not doing a very good job. What do you say to those Americans to maybe tell them why you want the corporate tax rate lower and why that helps them? It's a great question. We've created more jobs than this country has ever created. And if Biden comes in and raises taxes on everybody, and you'll end up with a depression the likes of which you've never had. He talks about a V-shaped recovery. It's a K-shaped recovery. If you're on the top, you're going to do very well. If you're in the middle or the bottom, your income is coming down. The Trump administration has attacked the rights of transgender people. How will you, as president, reverse this dangerous and discriminatory agenda? I will flat out just change the law. There should be zero discrimination. I've done more for the African-American community than any president with the exception of Abraham Lincoln. We shouldn't be defunding cops. We should be mandating the things that we should be doing within police departments and make sure there's total transparency. Trump's already pushing for more rallies. And his public schedule shows super spur events coming up all across the country. Starting in Florida. Georgia, 
Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, and that's just between now and Monday. Everyone, please take care of yourself and one another. Wear a mask. Thanks for listening in. Please try to vote early if you can in your state. I'll see you all next Friday. This is The Delft.